Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Hello and welcome to the second series of Irish GenPod. My name is Paul Gorry and during the series I'm chatting with people who are involved in various ways in Irish genealogy. Well, it's a rainy day here in my hometown of Baltinglass and we're sitting in Horan's Lounge having a chat. The rain is tapping away and it's pretty horrible outside. I'm chatting with Tom McGrath, who is the author of Unspoken, A Father's Wartime Escape and A Son's Family Discovery which was launched in March 2022. Hello, Tom. Hello, Paul, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Your book has done very well. Yes, it has exceeded all expectations, but I I should preface by mentioning that when I set out to write this book, I wrote it as an account for my children and my grandchildren and my family. It wasn't my intention to have the book published, but now that it has been published, I'm absolutely delighted because this is a story It's a humane story. It's not only about my parents, it's about people of their generation and what they had to endure. So yes, it has done very well. It's a, as I say, it's a humane story. It touches people's hearts and everyone who reads it or hears the story, they realize that people forget. And this acts as a reminder of what happened 80 years ago, 60 years ago, 50 years ago. And uh, we should never forget. Well, it is an extraordinary story. And uh, I mean, you were essentially orphaned when you were in your teens without any knowledge of any relatives whatsoever. And it wasn't until you were in your 60s, I think, that you started to look into your family background. Well, not quite, Paul. Um, Yes, I, I had no brothers or sisters, no cousins. And my parents, both my parents died when I was quite young, 14 and 15. But... Since then, all my life, I have been searching and looking to try and find information on my family background. And I approached you about eight years ago, and you very, very kindly prepared a report, a genealogical report. In 2015 it was. 2015. I, you, you mentioned that in the book, but I also looked it up. Yeah. So it's accurate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and you, you did a fantastic report. You gave me a background on my father's Uh, family background and on my mother's both of them very very different my father came from very humble background in a a beautiful village of port law outside of waterford and my mother came from a rich farming background in north county cork and in the report that you gave i I was able to get a glimpse peek through the, the window of history and see where he had lived where he was born, the family that he was brought up with, likewise with uh, my mother's family, and as I say, an entirely different upbringing. And your your father died when you were 15? My father died when I was 15, and Mm. 18 months before that, my mother died. She was only 53. And you didn't know of any relatives at that stage? No. Uh, Just you you had a legal guardian? Yes, it was a solicitor appointed as a legal guardian. Mm -hmm. But I should explain that at 16, I met my wife, um, Asun. We were both 16. I was in boarding school. And at that stage, I became very, very independent. Uh, 
the following year, I started traveling to Spain, where I would spend the whole summer and teach English. And for seven years, I would go to Spain for summers, Christmases, Easter's, until we got married in, in 1976. And then we finished our studies in, in uh, our respective institutions in Dublin, and we had two children. And I think it was when I had children that I felt the void even more intense in my life than mm -hmm. when I was single or when I was just married. And my, both my children, Eric and Christina, would ask me constantly about my background. And I had empty words for them because I didn't know. But they would accompany me. I'd bring them down to Port Law, for example. You, you knew that your father was oh, from Port Law? I knew, Law. knew my father yeah. was from Port Law. Mm -hmm. yeah. They'd stop people in, in the street in Port Law. Do you know any McGrath? Do you know any McGrath? <laughs> And we never struck luck, never, <laughs> never got lucky. And as I say, that void was always there. However, my daughter Christina, about six years ago, went down to work with Visor in, in Cork. And sure enough, she met a Cork chap. And over lunch meeting his dad, we had a conversation about our backgrounds and where we were from and so on. And he just casually asked if I knew such and such in, in Waterford. And I remember the name of uh, Johnny Elward. And I said, yeah, I do. I remember Johnny. Please give him my regards. So he did. And he came back to me. He said, Johnny says he remembers you very well. He remembers your family. And he has a lot of stories to tell you. So I went down to meet Johnny. And we had a beautiful lunch, walked around the town reminiscing. And shortly after that, he sent me an email. He said, here's the number and the name of somebody you might like to contact. So the number was for Billy McGrath, who I contacted. I phoned him, and it turned out Billy was my first cousin, one of nine siblings, sons and daughters of a brother of my father, all alive, all living, at that time all alive. And, and that was your first contact with That the was McGraths. my first contact. I, I spoke to all of them over the phone over a period of months, and then I arranged to meet them in March of 17. I went down to meet them in Waterford, and it was a hugely emotional occasion. Most of them are older than I am. They look like me. And they started telling me stories about my parents, who they knew. They knew of me, but they didn't know where I was. I had gone to boarding school when I was age 13, and then I, I left Warford and uh, was living in Dublin. And when they started telling me stories about my father, when he came back from the war, I looked at them and I said, wait a minute, what war? What are we talking about here? <laughs> They told me that they were aware that my dad had, had been in the war and one of them, who lives in London, called me and said that she believed her mother, who was in a creative writer's club, had written an essay about my dad and she would look for it. And she did. She found it and she sent it to me. The title of the essay was The Escape. So this gave a summary of my father's time in the British Army. He had been conscripted and he had served in France, fought in France and he'd been captured. So armed with that, wrote to the British Army authorities requesting his military records. You said that uh, you got interested when uh, Eric and Christina were born or when they were growing up. You wanted to know about your own background, but did you, did you pursue it before nineteen, before 2015, or was it just an aspiration? Well, I had always had a, a huge interest in finding out more about my family even before, but more so when they arrived. 
and as they got older, they started asking me questions and so on. Asking for McGrath's in Portlaw. Yes, Port yeah. They, they, <laughs> you see, my wife is Spanish and she mm -hmm. has a huge uh, family history. She has a family tree going back to the 1700s. Mm -hmm. And there was always that imbalance. And therefore, they were reaching out for an Irish heritage, which I couldn't give them. As I said, I would bring them down to Portlaw. They'd walk in the streets and ask people, they'd stop people, do you know any McGraths? And we, ne we never got lucky. And it's only when I got your uh, report as a genealogist that I had a foundation on which to build. That then, in conjunction with what the, my newfound cousins was able to tell me... It, it was through them that you found out your father was in the war. Yes. And then this, this lady had written an essay. Which, Correct. Which led you to... A right to the British authorities. Mm -hmm. uh, about a year later, I received a letter containing his military records. And in fact, there was a, his photograph on the day he was conscripted. Mm -hmm. It was quite remarkable, actually. And th th these reports were very, very detailed. And I, I could see that he had been uh, conscripted. I could see that he was sent to Aldershot. He was sent to, with the British Expeditionary Force to France, where he fought with, with the uh, 51st Highlanders, and was captured by Rommel. And uh, they were marched. These were the ones who didn't get away in Dunkirk, 10,000 of British soldiers. They were, and French soldiers, they were marched through northern France, into Belgium, into Holland, put on barges down the Rhine, and they were dispersed then to various prisoners of war camps. Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. ended up in, in um, Stalag XXA in Torn, in northern Poland. It's a beautiful, beautiful town. Mm -hmm. And it's a quite unique. It's a town in which um, all these fortresses have been constructed. They were constructed in the 18th century, or maybe it was perhaps the 19th century, I think, it was, uh, by the Prussians. Mm -hmm. And they are camouflaged from above. They have growth of oh. trees and bushes mm -hmm. above. So they could have been bombed very easily. They wouldn't have been identified as a, a prisoner of war camp. Mm -hmm. And I read an enormous amount uh, doing my research as to the conditions which were horrendous. Should have gone to spec savers. That's what the ads tell you. But for some people in India, it's not that simple. Imagine. Having no eye tests or glasses, you couldn't work, so you could lose your home. I'm Lisa from Specsavers, and I'm proud to help the Hope Foundation provide eye care in Kolkata. Specsavers arranged for me and my colleagues to go there and do eye tests. To date, we've given out over 11,000 pairs of glasses. Find out how we're changing people's lives for the better at specsavers.ie. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again, and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. So when I discovered that he had escaped after two years he planned his escape on his own i wanted to find out more information and every door i knocked i i didn't get answers until somebody suggested that if there was anywhere where i could find information it would be in the national archives in kew gardens mm -hmm. in, in, mm -hmm. in london so i went over to london and i spent four hours in the national archives a magnificent uh, establishment eventually 
because I had been given his serial number by the British Army Records, there it was. And I asked for the folio in which that uh, title was, was contained. The procedure is you fill out a form, you hand it in, and then you wait beside uh, these windows, these Perspex windows, until the folio is dropped in there and you're told this is for you. So mm -hmm. I was waiting about an hour. Well, I sat down and I looked at, the, at the, the, the booklet in front of me, not knowing what I was going to find. So I started leafing through it. There was no index. Mm -hmm. And after about 20 pages, there was his name, Corporal T. McGrath, with his address in Port Law, County Waterford, and his London address. And it is highly detailed. It was an interrogation by MI5 and MI6 and the Americans of when he got back. Mm -hmm. after his escape. As I say, it was highly de de detailed with dates, places, names and so on. I had to pinch myself to realise and to, to accept that this was my father's story. It was incredible. It, 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 was, some, it was a day that changed my life. Again, uh, I read more about the conditions and it's very, very detailed of what he went through. As I said, he was captured by Rommel. He was sent to Stalag XXA. That was, he was captured in saint Valery in uh, northern France. What happened was his division had been sent down to the Maginot Line and the panzers, the German panzers, came through the Ardennes above that and cut them off from the rest of the British Expeditionary Force. So they didn't get away in Dunkirk, but they did manage to get back to the coast. And it's when they got back to the coast Ramanad got there first, and that's when they were, were captured. Mm -hmm. The conditions in the march, conditions in the in the stalag were horrendous. The starvation was horrible. The lice that they had to suffer was intolerable, and particularly for the first two years. In 1942, Red Cross parcels started to arrive and things started to improve. Notwithstanding that, he obviously decided he wanted to get out. So with the help of another prisoner of war who worked outside of the camp, mm -hmm. he managed to obtain civilian clothing. And he wore the civilian clothing under his army uniform until the day came along when he saw his opportunity. On the day that he managed to escape, he slept in the woods that night. And the following morning, he came across a house in the woods and knocked on the door. An elderly Polish man opened the door. This is all in the report, in the, in the archives. And then the Polish man opened the door. And can you imagine what was going through that man's mind? Mm. Not, not to mention what was going through my father's mind at that stage. The Polish man took him in and hid him in his attic. And after two days, he asked him for his uniform and burnt the uniform. And that was this very significant moment because at that stage, he became a spy and would be shot on sight. Mm -hmm. He then brought him into the town of Tornan and introduced him to the resistance. And the resistance put him up in, in Tornan for a number of months after which he made his way to Berlin, mm. 1942, <laughs> the height of the war, extraordinary uh, it, to the lion's den. It's strange that, you know, it took to the heart of the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, And he stayed there for three months. Then with uh, fake French papers of a worker working in, in Germany, he made his way to Paris, stayed in Paris for four months. And then with no papers, he made his way down to Saint-Jean-de-Luz on the French-Spanish border. He was met by a Basque smuggler who pointed the way to the Pyrenees. He climbed over the Pyrenees in the height of winter 
in December 1942, arrived in the town of Bea in Spain and sat on the church steps, which, which I and my son did two years ago. We followed in his footsteps. Mm -hmm. And there he was, thinking, free at last, when along comes a Guardia Civil, because he had no documents, he was thrown into Franco's concentration camp in Miranda del Ebro, a place I've been also. The conditions there were horrendous. But at that stage, it was 1943, the Allies were getting the upper hand, and Franco, being the cute fox that he was, mm. uh, started to ease up on uh, things relating to the Allies, and he allowed him to get out with the, um, the British diplomats. He made his way to Madrid, and then to Gibraltar, and then back home, or back to, back to England. Back to Glasgow, I think, wasn't well, it? Well, the, the um, convoy headed back to Glasgow, mm -hmm. the port of Glasgow, and then he made his way down to, to London. Mm -hmm. And there, I, I should have mentioned earlier on, as you uh, referred to in your excellent report, he had married in 1957 to a local girl in Port Law, and they both emigrated to, to London for work. But when he came back after the war, she had presumed he was um, shot and killed, and uh, she had started a new relationship, so his marriage was over. He then went on leave back to Port Law, stayed in Port Law, and never went back. Well, I remember when you told me about this on the phone, I think it was, you yeah. told me about the report you found and how detailed it was and yes. whatnot. And I said to you at the time, it would make a great film because, you, you know, it, it's it's so full of of drama and, well, suffering and everything, but, yes. you know, and tension. You yeah. could imagine uh, for all the people who helped him and for himself, yeah. you know, the, well, the going through, getting false papers and you might be stopped anywhere. Oh, I mean, it's detailed in the, in the report that he was stopped many times with, with false papers. Mm. And you can imagine just being stopped once. I know, you know. yeah. Um, I mean, the man amazes me. I knew him until I was 15 years of age. He was always on a pedestal as each father of each son is. Mm -hmm. But I never knew how high that pedestal was until I discovered this. He was so determined that he wanted to get back home to see his family again. We also discovered that King George VI had, in 1943, had awarded him the military medal. So I wrote to the authorities asking if he ever got it, and if not, could I have it? They wrote back to, after about six months saying, no, he never got it, and you're not getting it because he never came back. So I said, hold on a second, this man fought for a country that wasn't his. He was promoted shortly after he conscripted. Not only that, but Churchill granted an amnesty in 1953 on the Queen's coronation mm -hmm. for soldiers in that uh, situation. Uh, was your father aware of that at the time? Um, well, you wouldn't know because he never spoke no, to No, he never spoke. He never spoke to anybody about it. You mm -hmm. didn't advertise in the 50s and mm -hmm. 60s in Ireland that you had been in the British Army, even mm -hmm. though you had been conscripted. But they accepted my appeal because they also gave precedence from the First World War. And about December, I received the most gracious letter from Lieutenant Colonel Simpson saying that, uh, first of all, apologies apologizing profusely to me for the way I've been treated. Yeah, it's in your book, the, 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 it's exactly. the, and it's, it is, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely letter. Oh, it's, it's a, it was a, a extraordinary. But he, he also said that my father's story had been discussed at the highest level of the British Army, and not only was he getting one medal, he was getting three. We were invited up to the British ambassador's residence in December of 2018, where I was presented with the medals, and we were wined and dined in, in, in a very 
high standard. So mm. it was a beautiful, beautiful detail and touch to, to, to do that. They could easily have said no. Mind you, I wasn't going to let it drop. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, how did the book come about? It okay. wasn't for publication. It wasn't originally. for publication. No, uh, everybody said it's a book. Everybody said it's a it's a movie. And mm. um, this was churning around in my head for a long time, a long time. My son Eric, who was living in Australia, uh, when he came back one Christmas, he and his wife sat down and said, "Look, you're going to have to write an account. You're going to have to do this." Okay. So they left, and that January, I sat down, and I said, "Okay." Up until now, I was hesitant because I felt all I had was the account from the National Archives. But I said, I can bring this to life. I joined the dots. I write a story being faithful to the account. I use the place names and the dates and stick to, stick to that. But I'll fill the gaps and I'll, I'll, I'll describe what could have happened or what might have happened. Mm -hmm. And to my astonishment, it just flowed. It just flowed. I just don't know where it came from. You see, I think what happened was I set out to find out all that I could about what happened to my father. I went to see the Stalag in the height of winter to try and get a sense of what it was like. I climbed over the Pyrenees with my son. I went to Miranda the Liberal to see the concentration camp. We went to um, San Valery to see where he was captured. So I was trying to get inside his head. You just rattled those off as if it was nothing, but they were individual trips that you went on. Oh, they were, this one that were very, two, two years. you know, they're mentioned in the book and all that, but I remember you telling me about them as well. They were pilgrimages almost for you. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Very much uh, so. When you and Eric went over the Pyrenees, yeah. that was terrific. But also your, your visit to Turon. Turon, yeah. Turon. Um, that was, yeah, that must have been very emotional for you. It was highly emotional when, when we sat on the steps of that church. It was a... Uh, the Pyrenees is when you got yeah, over the Pyrenees, yes. Yeah. There was, a, there was a, a sense of emotion, a spiritual, spiritual sense. It was, it was very, very, very moving. Mm -hmm. uh, when I walked through the Stalag, again, the sense of what those poor men had gone through, it was just an unbelievable feeling. But as I said, I, I was trying to get inside his head, but I felt he got inside my head. Mm -hmm. And that's how the words just flowed out All right. and the story came about. Another thing that I, I, I don't know if you really highlighted it in the book, but um, when you went to Spain, when you, when you met, well, yeah, it was before you went to Spain that you met Asun. Yes, I, I met Asun in, in Dunmore East, mm. in the Haven Hotel, in but, 1969. But, but then you, you were on a regular basis going over yes, to Spain. Correct. But you, you were familiar with um, uh, Saint-Jean-de-Luz. Yes, because I would travel down yeah. from um, Dublin over to take the, the train, over, sorry, the boat overnight to Wales and the train to London and down to um, Ramsgate or Dover, over to France. Uh, in fact, there were no motorways in those days and I remember many times walking through the cemeteries in Normandy, just mm -hmm. just looking at it, not knowing what had gone on there. You know, my father mm -hmm. had been there and then the overnight train down to to Saint Jean de Luz, and little did you know little did I that know. you were following your father's footsteps oh, even then. No, it's extraordinary. Another extraordinary thing is that there had been—I think my father was the only one who escaped on his own—but there had been a few more escape uh, escape attempts, rather, uh, from the Stalag, and all of those had either tried to go to Russia or to Sweden. My father was the only one who 
ended up in Spain. And the extraordinary thing is that he ended up in town, the town of Bera, which is 30 minutes from where my, <laughs> yeah. my, my wife was born. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's an amazing, amazing story. story. Yeah. Really. Um, and so, so the book came about as a record for your grandchildren. Correct. But my, yeah. when I had a rough draft, my wife asked me to give a copy of it to a friend of hers, Edith Daly, who, who's in that world, the literary world. I said, sure. And Ida came back and said she loved it. She gave it to a friend of hers, a literary agent. And I said, by all means. So Jonathan came back and said, yeah, I want to publish this. And I said, okay, well, I'll publish it. <laughs> Little did I know it was going to be published with, there, there you go. Now, we didn't talk about your mother. Okay. I didn't know my mother had a story. I think I knew my father more than I knew my mother because she died when I was 14. She had ill health because she had rheumatoid fever when she was young and she was always breathless. She was a wonderful, wonderful person. She came to Waterford in the 1940s. Uh, her father had given her some money and she bought the Lido Cafe and she ran that business hugely successful. It was the place to go in, in Waterford. And then when my father came back from the war, he got a job in, in Waterford in, in, uh, as a mechanic in Wade's garage. And then with a, an ice cream company driving the ice cream van around the town. And I, I suspect that's how he met my mother. Mm -hmm. But some years ago, after the discovery, I was asked to give a, a talk in Port Law in the Heritage Centre on my father's story. And that was widely advertised in the Munster Express, etc. And after the, the, the talk, the curator of the Heritage Centre contacted me and said that he had been contacted by somebody who was looking for my contact details. So I said, by all means, pass on my details. And this person who was inquiring turned out to be a first cousin on my mother's side, Dennis Vaughan. So my wife and I went down to Cork to meet Dennis, and we spent an hour with him. And he told me a lot of stories about my mother and my father. He knew them. He's older than I am. Mm -hmm. And after a while, I saw him shifting uncomfortably in his chair. And he said, uh, there's something in my head. I don't know if I should say it to you or if I can say it to you. So I said, well, the genie's out of the bottle. You're going to have to say it to me. So he told me that when my mother was very young, she had a relationship in uh, the town outside Cork where she was and that she had a baby, a baby boy born on uh, St. Patrick's Day, 1939. Uh, she, he gave me the, the name of the father, and um, so that was a huge surprise. surprise, to say the least. But I said to him there and then that I, I, I'm determined to find him. So that's when I contacted you, Paul, and through your efforts and so on, doing DNA tests, we found him. And I then liaised with Tuzla, and I was so lucky that the beautiful lady there took an interest in it. Mm -hmm. She got the file and we were so lucky to get the files. She invited me and my son Eric down to a meeting in Cork. And as we walked in, we sat down and she said, yep, yeah, that uh, she had found him and she'd been speaking with his two daughters. But unfortunately he had died eight months prior yeah. to my discovery. Yeah. But since then, and that was a huge blow to me. I, I, I got quite emotionally upset at that stage. But it turns out we've become so close 
to my nieces. They came over, spent a week with me in the summer, and uh, we built up a beautiful relationship. I had a big birthday there in July, and they sent me the most unbelievable birthday gift. A crystal ball of glass with some of their father's ashes. Oh. Which now rests on my desk to give me inspiration. Mm. Isn't that extraordinary? That's lovely. Isn't yeah. that wonderful? Yeah. So between my nieces and all my new cousins, I've built up a huge heritage mm. to balance the books in well, my family. Um, uh, you were basically orphaned when you were 15. You didn't know of any relatives at that stage. You you got married, you had your own two children. Yes. And in 2015, you still didn't know about anyone. Now you have a gang of cousins in Port Law. That's you've right. got a, um, relatives in, in Cork. You've got two nieces. Correct. So, yeah, it's I've built up a good crowd there. Well, thanks to you, you uh, suggested I, I should do a DNA test, which I did, and the results came back, and I have loads of second and third cousins all over the world. And a lady wrote to me from Australia. The lady said she was in her 50s, and she'd always be looking for her birth mother, who came from Port Long, ah. or Waterford. And by any chance did I know this surname? So my wife, uh, got all uh, prior to this, had asked all the cousins for details of their families, and she constructed the most magnificent McGrath family tree. So I got that out and I looked and we gave a, a copy to each of the cousins, framed, it was beautiful, they loved it. I got that out and sure enough, there was the surname, the daughter of one of my father's sisters. And I had a contact number through one of my cousins for a sister of this lady who I phoned. And she told me, yes, that's true. Her sister had had a baby given up for adoption. And her sister was living, is living in England in her late 80s, told the lady in Australia, and the mm -hmm. last I heard, they were arranging to meet. That's brilliant. Isn't that Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your story is family history uh, in reality. And, you know, it's, it's a terrific story. And uh, I'm sure it would be an inspiration to anyone who is doing family history. Not necessarily going to find all the surprises that you found. No, but... <laughs> no. But I think, I think, you know, as I said to you earlier, this is not only about my parents, it's about what the people of that generation had to go through. And I think, I think my parents are now getting the recognition for things they did that they'd never got in their lives because they were very brave. They were very high-profile, respected business people. Mm -hmm. My father couldn't say that he'd been in the British Army, even though he had been conscripted. My mother couldn't say that she had had a child out of wedlock. They couldn't marry. They spoiled me rotten. They didn't know that. They never knew that they were going to have a, a child, that she was going to have a second child. There was no way I was going to be given up for adoption. Mm -hmm. But the best thing they did was to send me to boarding school when I was 13. And I'm so grateful to them for that foresight. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a terrific story, and it is available in all good bookshops, I'm sure, as well. <laughs> um, the name of your book is Unspoken, The uh, Father's Wartime Experience and a Son's Family Discovered. Tom, thank you very much for taking the time, and particularly for coming to Baltinglass to, to talk to me. Not at all, and, all I'm uh, delighted. It's a beautiful part of the world, and I'm always happy to talk to you, and I'm always very grateful for all the, the help you've given me in my journey. Thanks very much, Ty.
I'd like to thank Senior Times for adding Irish Gen Pod to their collection of podcasts. Also, many thanks to my series producer, Connor O'Hagan, and to my audio supervisor today, John Hughes. Do tune in again.